Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Rising from the pumpkin patch this week is episode 186 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, so excited that we have another double dose of interviews once again this week. We're going to get a little bit spooky first. We're going to be talking about Freakish on Hulu, which, you know, we've got the freaks roaming around the high school and everything. We'll talk to Saxton Charbonneau, who played Anka in season two of Freakish about that. And then we have Rich.com on the show this week. That's right, Ennis Esmer is going to be talking about Blind Spot season three on NBC. We're going to be seeing a lot more of Rich.com. Have to ask him about that as well. So much to get to. I want to tell you, though, first, our review of Stranger Things season two, spoiler field review, going to be on next week's show. So make sure you come back for that next week. But plenty of stuff to review this week. As a matter of fact, some new comics, three new reviews up next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Street Angel writer and artist Jim Rugg, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Grab that laptop, tablet, or long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and something that's not even coming out until November the 15th, but I had to talk about it this week. It's Betty and Veronica Vixen's number one from Archie Comics, which is written by Jamie Lee Rontante. Eva Cabrera does the arts, Elena Unger on the colors, and Rachel Deering on the letters. Now, because this doesn't come out for another few weeks, Kind of sworn to secrecy on a lot of the stuff, but based on artwork that's already been released and a plot that's already been released, you know that there's gangs in Riverdale. Now, who's a part of what gangs? I cannot tell you that, but I will tell you that a little team up by Betty and Veronica just kind of tells me that, you know, there's a lot of books, especially from Archie right now, where Betty and Veronica kind of aren't getting along. I mean, even that crossover with DC that's going on with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. They don't necessarily get along. This book shows you how magical it can be when Betty and Veronica are actually friends and are actually getting along. There's just something so right about it. It made me smile. And every page where it was just the two of them together, it just worked out so, so well. And there are other characters involved in this book. I guess I really can't get much into it with you. I mean, you could probably read between the lines of who else is involved in this book. And the dynamic is very, very similar to what you would kind of expect from a classic Archie. Little bit mixed with modern Archie. That's the most description I could possibly give you. But what we see is a little bit of an edge from Betty and Veronica too, which I also like. You see their you know fun side and also their edgy side. And that's one of the things that makes this book works so well for me. And let's just face it, sometimes a book just needs to be fun, right? And the story in this book is quite good. I was very interested throughout, and it was just fun. And that was what I was hoping for from this book, especially based on the cover, which I think is gorgeous, also done by Eva Cabrera. I just wanted it to be fun, and it was. I didn't need it to be a knockout great story. I didn't need, you know, plot twists and plot lines here and there. I just needed it to be fun. And it really, really was. So if you want something fun to add to your pull box, this is one of those books, especially if you're an Archie fan, specifically a Betty and Veronica fan. Yes, this will be different enough where it just won't feel like, you know, the same old, same old Archie stuff. But it's also so much the same, especially in the art style, which 
seems to lend itself to more of a classic Archie look, which I liked. This will make you feel at home if you're an Archie fan. This is a pull for me. Hopefully it's a pull for you too once you get to grab it on November the 15th. Moving now to a video game comic I was pretty excited about because you know I'm a big Hitman fan if you listened to the show before. And Agent 47 Birth of a Hitman number 1 is coming out from Dynamite Comics, written by Christopher Sibella, who we've had on the show. Jonathan Lau and Ariel Medell do the art. Omi Ramalante does the colors and Thomas Napolitano does the letters. Now, this is very much a prequel comic for Agent 47, but I do want to start out talking about the art in this book because one of the first things that grabbed me about this book was the first three pages of art, which were just absolutely grabbing. I mean, if you didn't get hooked by the art in the first three pages, you might as well just stop right there. I mean, even if you're not a Hitman fan, the art just draws you in, and then you find out that, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler. I'll say it this way. A character that you know from the Hitman games, if you've played the Hitman games, this is very much their origin as well. And it's a very, very interesting take that Christopher Sabella has on this. Now, aside from the art, I got to give Christopher Sabella a lot of credit here because having had him on the show before, it just feels like there's emotion thrown throughout this book and for good reason. And I love how we get inside the mind of 47 in this book and it's a conflicted mind and I love that because it's the early going why wouldn't he be conflicted right and when we get to the ultimate culmination in this book which of course I'm not going to spoil for you right now you kind of understand how he got there but you also understand it's like Sabella makes you understand why each character feels the way they do and how they got to where they are in their head at the present moment and that's not just something that you can throw away you say well every writer does that that's not necessarily true. The attention to detail in the writing and that's given to at least the main characters in this book, I think, is a little bit next level, especially in the relationship between 47 and one of the other agents in this book. They make He makes it matter so much, and it makes it a plot line that I really wasn't expecting, even in the prequel comic for this story, and made me care about it. And, and I knew I was going to care about two of the characters in this book, but I wasn't expecting for that particular angle to be played. And I think it's well done by Sabella. And, and it lends itself to the amazing art. And there was one, at least one twist in here for me, if not two, that made me want to read the next issue of this comic. And as a Hitman fan, I was not disappointed at all. There wasn't as much, I guess, action as you might expect from this book. We did get a little bit here and there. So if you're looking for like action throughout Guns Blazing or classic Hitman type of Easter eggs, yeah, there's a couple, but it's not laden throughout. But I actually think, maybe I'm in the minority here, that that's a smart move by Sabella. I mean, do you want it to be shot for shot like the game, or you want to try and tell a story here? And I feel like that's what Christopher Sabella is doing, is trying to give us a legitimate Hitman story. And it's not easy to do a prequel for something that there's been several games of already, and fans kind of had their have their mind made up of, how this went, and even some stuff given to us throughout the games as well. So you do get some characters that you recognize in this book, but the story matters so much, and the raw emotion, which seems to be one of the things that Christopher Sabella brings to the table that he's so, so good at. The raw emotion was one of the things I loved about this book. Didn't expect that. This one is another pull for me as well. 
Moving on to a book and a writer that I've loved for a while, actually, from DC Comics. It's, of course, Benjamin Percy. But this time, let's talk about Teen Titans number 13, which, of course, is written by Percy. Koi Pham does the pencils. Trevor Scott on the inks. Jim Sherallampolius does the colors. Sorry, Jim, if I butchered your name there. It's kind of what I do on the show. Corey Breen does the letters. And Dan Mora with another fantastic cover. I have to spoil something right off the bat from this book. Otherwise, the point in reviewing it is kind of zero. So Damien wants to recruit someone to replace Kid Flash on the Teen Titans, but the Teen Titans want Kid Flash back, and that is the crux of the first arc of this story. Now, who he wants to recruit is what I have to spoil because I think it's interesting, and this is the only thing I I will spoil, I promise. Emiko Queen is the one that he wants to recruit for the Teen Titans. Of course, you know Damien had a little bit of a run-in with Oliver Queen in another recent story, and it was kind of Oliver's idea that maybe this is a suggestion, so or at least planted the seed for that. Their interactions together, Emiko and Damien, I gotta say, there's something so right there, and I don't know if this is something that, because Benjamin Percy, of course, writes Green Arrow as well. I don't know if this is something that's been cooking in Benjamin's head for a while. It's almost like one of those things where, where once I saw it, I was like, how has this never happened before? Or maybe it has in, in in past comics and I've just missed it. But this just seemed like such a right combination because they're, they're very similar. And you don't realize how similar they are until you put them on a page next to each other and you have them interacting with each other. That was my favorite part of this entire book was that interaction between Emiko and Damien because it was just so they are... They are each other, almost. That's the best way I could possibly put it. And Emmy's got her mission on the side, but then, of course, you also see the rest of the Titans, led by Starfire, trying to get Kid Flashback. And there's that very, you know, uneasy, emotional side to that story as well, whereas, you know, Kid Flash, maybe he doesn't want to come back. And then you've got everybody trying to convince him that he should. And it's the relationship between Raven and Wally that I think is a really special one going forward in the story, and I'm really looking forward to see how much that's fleshed out even even more in these issues from Percy is hopefully the focus is going to be on that to find out exactly what Kid Flash's decision is going to be, whether or not he wants to rejoin the Titans. I'm not going to spoil any of the plot points in this book, but we do see a very interesting villain come into play when we're, when we're talking about Emiko and Damien together, and that's something that's going to have to be dealt with. And I just love the way that Benjamin Percy writes this book. The, the art has been very consistent throughout as well. I know that they've changed artists a couple times now, but the art has been very consistent. I don't feel like it's lacking in anything. It, it almost feels like it's as good as the art in Green Arrow, which is a very big compliment. I think Green Arrow has it beat just a little bit, but so much consistency. It's almost like Benjamin Percy gets lucky to work with such great artists on every book that he's working on with DC, and this one is no different. So I'm going to keep this in my poll box as I have for a while. Teen Titans number 13 is where we're at right now from DC Comics. So it's been a good couple of weeks, actually, for me, me reading. Hopefully it has been for you. Up next, we've got a double dose of Geek Tim and should be no surprise with Fall TV going on. We'll start it off with an interview, actually, from Hulu's freakish Sexton Charbino. will join me to talk about the show and a lot more next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we're getting you ready for Halloween, and it's a little bit freakish on the show this week because we're talking to Anka from Freakish and other things as well, but we'll get to that in a second. It's Saxton Charbonneau. Saxton, how you doing? Great, how are you? 
Doing fantastic, but I mean, you've been at this since, what, you were nine, and you've already done a lot of horror work, actually. You've been in Poltergeist, of course, now Freakish, so, I mean, other than paying the bills, what's the best part of working in the horror genre? Um, the intense emotion. The horror genre, you get to be afraid, you get to cry, you get to feel a lot of feelings you wouldn't normally feel, feel in everyday life, so that's always fun. Absolutely. And speaking of freakish, we have seen kind of a lot of shows and movies that deal with zombies or zombie-like beings. And you were actually at the Walking Dead 100th uh, episode premiere. So what do you think kind of makes freakish so different from similar shows? Or do you feel like it's similar to The Walking Dead? There's definitely some similarities to The Walking Dead. Um, you know, there's an outbreak. People are getting infected. If you get bit, you're infected. The freaks want to eat you. Those are all similarities. But um, the freaks aren't actually zombies. We don't really know what the freaks are, but we think they might have been created instead of just a freak accident. Matter of fact, your character Anka was kind of a bit of a master manipulator on the show at first, but kind of started to grow as the season went on. So did you know kind of how much your character was going to evolve as the second season went on? I did not know how the character was going to evolve. I really wanted to play her in a positive way. I wanted to create this full character that wasn't mean or even when she was being manipulative, manipulative, she was doing it uh, just for survival and to protect your family that she loves. Um, I wanted her to be a likable or at least relatable character in the beginning. And then I really did love how the character developed and how she became more loving and more vulnerable as the season went on. Speaking of that, actually, I mean, there's, the show's had some very loyal fans, and of course, you're jumping in in the second season, so when you came into the show, you were, you were literally an outsider, so what kind of reactions were you getting from the diehard Freakish fans, especially when it was revealed who your character actually was? Yeah, I definitely got a lot of comments. I think they liked the character. I think they liked that they kind of had a backstory to the original season. Um, that they were able to understand more what was going on in the freakish world. Um, and I think Anka really helped show that and show what was actually happening, not only in the school, but in the entire community. Absolutely. Talk about the group dynamic on the show, too, because it's very interesting, not just with the group of outsiders, but the group that was already in the high school as well. What do you feel like that group dynamic was like, like and where Anka eventually fit into that? Yeah, so season two definitely has a lot of interesting relationships and alliances being developed. Actually, some unlikely alliances that I didn't even expect reading the script. I think the group really came together at the end of the first season. Um, at the beginning of the first season, they weren't friends. And by the end, in the beginning of season two, they were really close friends. And so I think adding new characters helps not only explore the new characters in their relationships, but how loyal they were to each other. Was there any character that, looking back on the second season now, you're like, ah, oh, I wish I could have worked with that person more because I think Anka would have played really well with them? Well, I loved all my scenes with Liza. I loved the, the kind of love triangle they had going on. Mm -hmm. And she's just a great person to work with. She was super fun. Even when we were filming intense emotional scenes, she was, she was really funny, and I, I enjoyed working with her. Now, I wanted to move to something you've actually done a little bit recently. We just saw you in Lucifer, a show we talk about a lot on our podcast in the episode, What Would Lucifer Do? So when you were doing that show, did you kind of have a favorite scene? Uh, yeah. My favorite scene was when I revealed that I had a drug empire. That was so cool. I felt like a boss. That was a very badass moment for you, I got to say. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was a lot of fun. Now, you actually got to work with one of my favorite people who we've had on the show before, Tom Ellis. What was it like working so closely with Tom? And did you actually get any advice from Tom uh, behind the scenes on the show? Um, Tom is such a cool guy. He's an amazing actor. It's really cool to see him transform from Tom into Lucifer. Oh, yeah. And even his manner is quite different, which is really cool. He's really sweet. He helped me, like, meet everyone and feel comfortable on set. We didn't get into the life advice thing, but I'm sure you would have some great advice. The the transformation for him when I when I've met him a couple times too, it's so amazing because he's not that dude at all. No, he's a very sweet guy. Um, I met his daughter. He brought his children on set. He's kind of like a family man, and then to see him transform into the devil. Super sick. Yeah, really it's, cool experience. It's definitely crazy. Now, the episode kind of took place on a drug rehab dude ranch, and we saw you at the horse stalls when we first saw you. Now, we didn't actually see you on a horse, Saxon, so is that something you were kind of hoping you'd be able to do? And is that something that you've actually done before? Oh, yes. I'm from Texas. So I actually grew up right next to like an equestrian center, so I'm really comfortable around horses. They actually had our director chairs set up like in the stables. So I would have loved to be able to ride road a horse, but um, it's definitely something I'm comfortable with, and I love animals, so it was really fun. Now, Saxon, you've been in some you've been at some conventions and stuff in the past, so I'm sure that you've seen some amazing cosplay and people getting into their characters and stuff like that. So, if you could cosplay as one character, who would it be? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I've been to some horror cons, and there's some intense cosplayers there. Uh, some, I saw one girl who uh, dressed up as some type of creature, and she, like, crawled under our table that we were signing at oh, and, like, wow. screeched. It was the most insane experience of my life with those horror guns. If I could cosplay any character, I think I would cosplay Wonder Woman. That would be cool. Yeah, I would love to go. play, like, an ass hero. That would be amazing. That would be pretty awesome. So let's take that a step further before I let you go because there's so much going on in the superhero genre right now, is there a show that you still would really like to be on or a character that you'd like to play maybe other than Wonder Woman? Because i got to tell you, there's a show called Titans coming on the DC streaming channel. I can, I can really see you playing Tara Markov on, on Teen Titans at some point. I would love that. I haven't seen it before, but I would love to be in a Marvel show. Playing Jean Grey would be like ultimate goals, like a younger version. That would be so sick. Yeah, really any Marvel show. I think they do an amazing job. I'm bringing that world to life, and it would be an honor. See, the way I see it, you're already part of the Fox family because you were on Lucifer, so now you could maybe be on The Gifted at some point. They need to get on that. Yeah, my good friend Natalie's on The Gifted. I would love to be on The Gifted. Fox is amazing. I did Touch with Fox. I did Poltergeist with Fox. I did Lucifer with Fox. I, I would love to be a lead in a Fox show again. That'd be See, great. Saxon, it all makes sense, and that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can stream season two of Freakish on Hulu right now. Make sure you're binging it. You probably won't be able to stop watching it once you do sit down, so you might want to block off some time. And you can also see Saxon's episode of Lucifer on Fox.com or, of course, on the Fox app. And watch out for her and a bunch of other stuff because she's everywhere right now. Saxon Charbonneau, thanks for joining us this week. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Great getting a chance to talk to Saxon Charbonneau, not just about Lucifer, but about Freakish as well. And, you know, just my quick thoughts on Freakish. This is definitely one of those teen horror, young adult type genres where as an adult, maybe you're not necessarily going to get it. But there are some elements there as well. There's there's an interesting backstory about the company that was involved here. I don't want to get too much into spoiler territory, territory or anything, but this definitely, as Saxon said, it's not really a zombie show. There are some zombie-like elements, and they are not the main focus of the show. And the way these characters interact with each other, it ha- definitely has that kind of B-movie horror-type vibe to it, which is really, really neat, something that's brought back and almost introducing young adults to the horror genre. There's not a ton of gore there, but there's definitely a little bit. So if you haven't seen Freakish on Fox yet, especially this time of year, kind of great time of year to check something like that out. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tame. And up next, going to be my spoiler-filled this time review of Superstition, brand new show on sci-fi. It's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Karen Ashley from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Continuing with this week in Geek Tame, and a show that you actually might have missed that actually debuted on sci-fi last week called Superstition, which is the brainchild from Mario Van Peebles. Of course, that's a name that you might recognize. And this is going to be a spoiler-filled review for the pilot episode only, so not going to spoil anything beyond that. But it's a story about the Hastings family who is from a fictional town called La Rochelle in Louisiana. And they own a funeral home and there's infernals and strange supernatural happenings, stuff like that. But a lot of this show was actually about the Hastings family dynamic. And you've got Calvin Hastings, who's played by Brad James, who is the son of the family. We see at the very beginning, something happens to his brother. His brother dies and he has to, and he, well, he doesn't have to, He takes off. He kind of goes, joins the army, goes to Afghanistan, goes off to fight in wars and stuff like that. And then what we see at the beginning of this episode is Calvin returning to the family business, returning to the funeral home and the fact that his family are the protectors of La Rochelle. Now, Mama welcomes him back right away. B. Hastings, who's played by Robin Lee, welcomes him back right away with open arms. But Isaac, his dad, played by Mario Van Peebles, Not so much. And that's the biggest theme of the episode, I think, was the uneasy family dynamic between Isaac and Calvin. And Isaac's like, you know, you got all this life experience, but you can't just kind of waltz back in here and think that you can pick up right where you left off or think that you could just help me out because you don't know what I've been going through. And then you've got Calvin saying, I'm a soldier. I can handle it. I've seen stuff, too. And it's the back and forth uneasy dynamic between the two of them that I think was my favorite part about this first episode because he makes him earn it. Isaac makes Calvin earn his spot in the family, even though he went off and did his own thing. And yeah, there's still, there's definitely some kind of animosity with the fact that he left the family for so long in the first place as well. Just not from mama. Mama's happy to have him back, period. And that's just the way, the way it ends there. She's like, let's just welcome him back in. But Still making him earn his spot in the family business and the dynamic between dad and son, I think was what me. And I mean, I know it's a trope, you know, the son goes away for a while, wants to come back and be a part of the family business. You know, that's something that we've seen in shows before, but something about Mario Van Peebles' character, Isaac, that that just made it work out so well. And he's that dad and he plays it to a T and he's got like a thousand great quotes that he just pulls out all over the place. They actually make a joke about it right before they're about to go and fight one of these infernals. 
Uh, Calvin Hastings actually makes a joke like, really? You got another one of those quotes on you or something like that? So that was another good part of the show was I loved the quotes. They were random, but he just felt like that figurehead of a family that you don't see very often on TV anymore where he's like, I'm the head of this family. This is how we do things. My way or the highway kind of thing. And Mario Van Peebles just commands that on the screen. And then you've got this side story of uh, Mae Westbrook, who is a sheriff's deputy in the town of La Rochelle, played play by Demetra McKinney, who they, she had a relationship with Calvin before we left. And, you know, again, spoiler alert, they end up having a daughter and the daughter doesn't know that he didn't know, and she felt like she was abandoned. And there's another uneasy relationship for Calvin to have to deal with. So already Calvin's walking in, and he's got all of these things that he has to deal with that you know you almost kind of don't expect when you come back home and just think you're just going to pick up right where you left off. And then you enter the villain, who's called the Dredge, which I don't actually think that we see that we we get his name. In the episode, we find out he's called the Dredge, played by W. Earl Brown, who is just so creepy and evil. And I am not a fan of snakes, by the way. I do not like snakes at all. I have very few phobias. That's one of them. So the fact that all these snakes were all over the place and biting people and turning them into these evil infernals. No, not cool, Mario Van Peebles. So thanks for feeding into my snake phobia with this first episode. But I mean... Hey, a show like Superstition and treading that horror line, it was perfect for the show. Creepy for me, perfect for the show, because it definitely gave you that creepy vibe. And then we know that that's kind of not all that's going on. He's not the only one. He's This, this is not something that's just going to be a one-and-done villain. This is something that's going to drag out throughout the town. So before, I don't want to get too deep into all of the plot details. I think I've done a pretty good job of that. But I want to talk about... The ending. Okay? And again, spoiler-filled review, so this should be no shock to you. When Calvin, in a battle with the Dredge, with him and his dad, he can make he can change faces and make it look like he's a different person. And Calvin actually ends up accidentally killing his dad. He cuts his head clean off. So you have that Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of moment. And I say that because... You kind of wonder where the story's going to go from there. And I will say this. I think they killed off Dad too soon. I know that he's going to be the Obi-Wan to Calvin's Luke Skywalker. I totally get that that's probably where we're going with this. I understand that. But at the same time, I think you killed Dad too early. I wanted that relationship to go a little bit further. And sure, they kind of patched things up really quickly throughout the episode. And they kind of inched their way to being okay, like Calvin screws up a couple times and dad makes him do these menial things to kind of earn his keep and he earns it very quickly in this first episode, or does he? I mean, I guess that's a debatable point if you're trying to pick the show apart. Maybe he doesn't earn it enough and that should have been fleshed out a little bit more in future episodes. But again, I think they killed dad too early and I'm not just saying that because I like the Isaac character of Mario Van Peebles. I'm saying that because... I think if you waited a little bit longer, let them get a little bit closer for at least a couple more episodes, then you kill Dad. It means a little bit more, right? I mean, even Game of Thrones knew that in its first season. They didn't kill off Ned right away. I mean, pretty quickly, right? But not completely right away. So, I don't know. I just feel like 
that could have been done a little bit better. And I mean, there were a couple of other things. I'm not going to pick it apart completely. There were a couple of other things that were awfully convenient uh, in the show that just sort of worked out or you thought it was going to be more complicated. And then they just said, oh, well, you know, it was just this, this and this. And it was kind of explained really, really quickly. And I don't want to get into specifics for that. But the show, while it's not a home run, is a very, very interesting kind of entry into sci-fi's programming because it gives you a little bit of horror, gives you a little bit of the of the sci-fi element as well. It gives you a nice fictional town of La Rochelle. And by the way, the town isn't necessarily appreciative that they are the protectors of the town. If anything, they kind of almost blame them for the stuff that's going on in the town, it seems like. But there are some that support them and some that don't. So, and it's, and it's a very diverse cast. I love that as well, that, that they go ahead and do that. And, it, you know, you don't see a whole lot of shows in the horror and sci-fi realm with an all-African-American family, which I thought the family dynamic was absolutely fantastic. I love the fact that the funeral home is the business. We still have to deal with the brother dying. I don't feel like they dealt with that completely in this first episode. So I think that's going to be a theme going forward. So is this one of those shows that I'm going to make sure that I'm home every night that it's on? to watch it? No, probably not. But I mean, this is certainly something I'd throw on my DVR or certainly something that when the first season's over, I'm probably going to go back and watch it because it was a very interesting story. And the Cal- I thought Brad James was very good as Calvin. And I got to see where this goes now, at least for the next couple of episodes. So it's almost like if I were to rate this as a comic, I'd rate it as a pickup. Like I'll do a couple more episodes and see where we go here. And I think that it's at least going to get somewhere. I feel like it's going to be a decent story, if nothing else. And even if it only gets one season, I feel like it's going to be a good run. And this is something, certainly for this time of year, especially around Halloween, and we just had Friday the 13th, and that was what the first episode was kind of about, dealing with something that's happening on Friday the 13th. This is something that you can certainly enjoy this time of year. If this was almost like a mini-series instead of an actual series, it would make a little bit more sense to me, too. Because I think that that would would certainly make more sense. But, I mean, if they can carve out a good story and give me something more going forward, I'll definitely be all in on Superstition. It's going to do it for this week in Geektainment. Up next, yeah, we've got nerd news to get to. It's here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's right around Halloween, so what else will we be doing but looking for ghosts? It's time for nerd news. And the reason I say that, we're going to start things off with the trailer for Winchester, A House Built by Ghosts, which is going to be coming out on February 2nd, 2018. Helen Mirren is going to be playing Sarah Winchester. Of course, maybe you know the story of the Winchester house. Maybe you don't. She's the majority shareholder of the Winchester fortune. This is inspired by those true events and... Strange things happen to this house. It's one of those, it was a 24-7 type of deal where the house is being built for so many years and it never really stopped being built. I won't go on the whole Winchester house mystery. If you want to hear a little bit more about it, you can look at our House of Penance interview that we did with Peter J. Tomasi. That's a story about the Winchester house as well that you can go back in one of our past episodes and listen to that. But looking at this movie that they're now making, about that. It's very interesting because the group's going to be trying to take away the house from her. And we have Dr. Eric Price, who's played by Jason Clark, who's kind of been summoned by Sarah Winchester to investigate the house, investigate the ghosts. And it's like she's kind of built this house also as almost an, an, an asylum 
for these ghosts to sort of keep them in. So there are some jump scares in the trailer that, that, are, that are pretty good. You know, I only worry about this movie, and I'm really excited about it because I've always loved the Winchester House mystery and everything that goes along with it. My only worry is that it's going to be a little bit too over the top, and there's going to be too many jump scares. I, I, maybe that's not a thing. If you're if you're a huge horror fan, maybe that's something that you like. I'm just worried that we're going to get a little bit too much of that. And then the group that's trying to take the house from her, uh, Arthur Gates, who's played by Tyler Coppin, I, I'm also worried that that whole thing's just going to not necessarily need to be a part of the story. I just hope it's more about the house itself and the mental state of Sarah Winchester as well, because apparently that was a huge, huge part of this entire story, not just the the mystery house itself, but her mental state in being a widow and everything that happened after her husband's death. So I'm just hoping that this not only tells the story about the Winchester house well, but also does justice to the actual spooky parts and elements of the house. I hope it doesn't go too, too in the horror thing. I hope it stays more thriller than horror, and I think that'll make it a little bit better story. Speaking of movies that may or may not be coming, an X-23 movie is supposedly being scripted, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Daphne Keene would reprise her role, or at least that's the idea anyway, that she had in Logan as X-23. And director James Mangold is working on the script right now, and that's kind of where they're at. I mean, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done for this to actually be put into production, but the script is being worked on. And James Mangold, when he was talking to The Hollywood Reporter, was saying that, Wonder Woman and the success that Patty Jenkins had actually is helping studios be more open to female protagonists. And that actually gives this movie a chance to actually start happening. Now, I think that this is one of the things that once we saw Logan, this is one of the things that you wanted, right? You wanted that Daphne Keene X-23 movie because she was so absolutely 100% amazing in that movie. But I guess you really didn't think it was actually going to happen. And now that I know that a script's being worked on, and it seems like the wheels are turning here, you start to get a little bit more excited about this eventuality, don't you? And and this is something I, I can't think of a single person that wouldn't want this. I mean, wouldn't you want to see that, especially after how Logan went down? And yeah, it might be a little bit different, and maybe it'll be more of an origin story, and maybe that's not what you're down for. But I got to tell you, I'm all in on this. I can't wait for this to happen. And for this, I mean, and with everything that's being made, we've got the Gambit movie coming. We've got New Mutants. We've also got Dark Phoenix that's going to be coming. It seems like we're getting ready for another turn of the page in the X-Men franchise here in the next few years. Why not let this be one of the tent poles of that? Because you'll capitalize on the popularity of Logan. That's not one of those performances that you forget either. I know that it's going to be a little bit further down the way from Logan, but at the same time, that's not one of those performances that you forget. You'll remember her from that movie, and you'll remember that character. So I don't think going back to this is any problem at all. Nobody's going to forget about it. Speaking of something that was a little bit forgotten, though, and that is a Dora the Explorer live-action movie that is apparently in the works again now from Paramount, again, according to The Hollywood Reporter. It's going to be from Platinum Dunes, which is a company that is run by Michael Bay. That will be the production company that will produce and. Nick Stoller, who did the Muppet movies, also was involved in Neighbors as well, will direct this. Now, before I go into the obvious joke that's sitting right there, Dora would actually be a teenager in the movie. She would not be a seven-year-old girl. She'd be living in the city. The studio hopes for a 2019 release date. They tried this once in 2015, didn't get it off the ground, so we're going to try it again now. 
So my thing here is, is that Dora's going to be like the Rambo that blows up everything, doesn't actually explore and go out looking for anything. You thought you were here to explore, but we're here to destroy. And there's explosions everywhere because, let's face it, it's Michael Bay. And that's kind of what he does. But, I mean, look at Nick Stoller, who is obviously not known for this stuff. And, and maybe Michael Bay takes a little bit of a backseat here and lets Nick Stoller do what he wants to do with this. And I'm not saying that this couldn't be a, a decent movie and this could actually work for a young adult audience. I'm just saying anytime I see Michael Bay's name attached to anything now, all I think is terrible female leads and stuff blowing up all over the place. And can you blame me for having that opinion based on what we've seen from Michael Bay recently, especially Transformers The Last Night, which was an unmitigated disaster? Although, speaking of that, you try and think of who could play Dora in this movie, and I think of Isabel Moner, who was in Transformers The Last Night, who played Isabella, and you know that producers and directors tend to go with the familiar, right? So I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see her at least in the running to play Dora in this movie. And I mean, I'm not sure what the rest of the cast would shake out. Obviously, that would have a lot to do with the plot of the movie and where they're going. But I mean, is this something we want, though? That's the other question. Is this something that you think would even relate to a young adult audience? Obviously, as an adult, you're probably not going to plop down 15 bucks a ticket to go see Dora the Explorer yourself, right? I mean, that's that's probably a safe assumption, but you know, something you could take the kids to, something that young adults are going to want to see. I think personally, this movie's a tough sell, and I think that we're seeing moviegoers be a little bit more picky when it comes to movies that they want to go to, and some movies that would normally just almost by default make money aren't making money now because, you know, going to the movies is expensive, so a lot of folks are waiting for it to come on Netflix or on Blu-ray or video on demand, something like that, and... I'm starting to get in that camp a little bit myself. It's like, okay, well, I could go see this. It looks okay. But the expense of going to a movie now in a theater is kind of off the charts. So um, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if this movie, if it was made, didn't make a whole lot of money. So if they can keep the budget low, maybe it's worth it. If not, eh, I just don't know. But here's one of my favorite stories of the week. Is that we are going to get a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles four-player arcade game once again, and we can thank Raw Thrills for this because they're the ones that announced it on Twitter. They're going to be working on the project. It's going to be built from scratch, all kinds of new assets. It's going to be almost very. It's going to be very similar to the style of the 1989 Konami TMNT arcade game. It's going to be based on the newer Nick series, but you're going to have the big 55-inch HD screens on there. There's going to be more move sets, special attacks, environmental stuff that you're going to be able to do there as well. You can interact in the, with the environment more. I want this so bad, I can taste it. Because I'm still somebody that goes to arcades. I played that. If you've played that giant version of Space Invaders that they have in arcade games and arcades now, I love that. If I saw this and didn't read about this first and just walked in and saw this, I would lose it. And I would eat up all my points or coins or whatever you're using to play your arcade games now. I would eat almost all of them up on this game alone. And the fact that, think about what it could look like. It could look exactly like the animated series itself. I really hope that the engine that they use on this allows them to really crank the game up and make it look like you're actually playing in an episode 
of the animated series. If Even if you're not, I know that it's going to be killer graphically. It's going to be amazing. I think that the music's going to be very important for the pace of gameplay. And I know that's weird, but that was one of the things I also loved about arcade games. Especially like a game like Double Dragon, which was a fighter-type game as well. A game like that, the music drove me when I was playing that game. So I think that that's another thing that could be really cool and important here. And to make this an homage to the original, maybe one of the greatest arcade games of that era. Yeah, I am all about this, so I can't wait for this to come out. Of course, you might know that they you might know that they also made the Fast and the Furious arcade games. They're responsible for, for Guitar Hero Arcade. So I'm really looking forward to what Roth Rails can do with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That'll do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, the premiere of Blind Spot Season 3 is here, and we're going to be talking to a guy we're going to be seeing a lot more on the show this year. Rich.com himself, Ennis Esmer, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Audrey Spotify from Blind Spot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, if you've listened to this show at all, you know one of our favorite shows is Blind Spot on NBC. So excited that it's back on Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern. And I was so excited to be able to talk to this guy here. It's Rich.com himself, Ennis Esmer. Ennis, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm very good. Thank you very much. I'm excited. Excited to be a part of the show. Excited to be on the podcast. I mean, I'm excited, too, because every show, and it seems to have that guest character that you kind of always remember. And, and honestly, for me, on Blindspot, that was Rich.com. So what's your favorite part about playing Mate. that character? I mean, on, without giving away spoilers, the stuff I've gotten to do this season already somehow tops jumping off a rooftop with a, a parachute hidden in a tuxedo, breaking out of jail, running from assassins. I mean, every single week... I get to do something insane and unbelievably fun and then and getting closer to this cast and finding ways to, you know, ring comedy or other things from moments that you kinda can only do once you get to know a cast better, that's that's definitely the most fun you can have on something like this. Like everybody that I work with, the more we work together, the more you kinda get to know each other and your tendencies and your, your foibles and it's fun. It's fun to play with all that stuff. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, when I first saw the trailer for season three not too long ago and found out that Rich.com was going to be joining the FBI team, I think I kind of stood up and cheered in a yeah. room by myself like a crazy person. So <laughs> what's your what was, what was your reaction when you found out that your role was going to be expanding on the show? I mean, it was kind of the same. I don't think I stood up and cheered. I was with two friends. We were coming out of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 in May, I think, and uh, which is crazy because I had to keep it a secret for almost five months. And I just I had to go up to the, you know, I went to go to, I went to the, the washroom, like wash my hands and was just kind of in shock. And the way, uh, the way Martin, he sent me a text saying like, heads up, they're going to offer you 10 episodes. I hope it works out. And I was like, that's a very cute way to present this to me. Like, like I'm going to say, oh, I don't know if it'll work out really. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know if I really want to do the, the job. It's been the most fun I've ever had in my whole career. Uh, let me think on it for a little bit. So I, I decided within two seconds, you know, so. Definitely. That's, that's not yeah. a hard decision at all. As a matter of fact, you, you talk about Martin. We've had, no. him, on, we've had him on the show as well. And uh, you've worked with him a couple times. Oh, he's times. a sweetheart, isn't he? Yeah, he's great. I mean, you've already worked with him a couple times. I mean, you were on L.A. Complex with him. You did uh, Dark Matter as well. Yes. So, I mean, do you just have the dirt on him, or do you just really love working for him? Uh, there might be some photographs. No, I mean, <laughs> I've known Martin since, like, the early, I've known Martin since, and Brendan Gall since the early aughts. You know, when we were all doing sketch and improv and and uh, Martin was uh, cutting his teeth as a writer 
and you know, so I've known these guys for you know 15 years. So it's just a it's just a blast and, and a great uh, feeling to know that they've been able to extend these opportunities to people they've worked with. I mean, that's you know, when you think about like networking, you think about like shaking hands at a party and exchanging business cards and stuff. This is more. This is something that organically kind of happened. You know, we've had friends and opportunities have been presented to them, and they've taken people along with them that they believe in, that they've worked with. You know, that it, it's more collaborative that way. And and it actually, I mean, I'm so fortunate to have a showrunner that I can text and and ask questions and it not feel like an intimidating environment. That's a that's a a gift, really, because you know, as far as these, there's there can be hierarchies on shows, and and Blindspot runs so smoothly in that respect. He treats everybody like, like family on the show, the whole cast. So it's, uh, it makes it really easy. That and you know where all the duffel bags are dropped off. Right. Yes, absolutely. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I have the coordinates. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, absolutely. So one thing that's always been pretty consistent about Rich.com, though, getting back to the show, is that he always kind of has his own agenda. So now that he's part of the team, without spoiling anything, does that mean that he's kind of truly reformed, or might we see something in the works at some point, you think? You know, I think the philosophy that Rich has is uh, best deal wins. And, you know, he was in prison. Uh, he actually worked out a deal. You know, if you remember in the, his last episode from last season, he, he helped him solve a tattoo in exchange to get Boston some leniency in jail. Yep. So he knows he has a bit of leverage. And the fact that in the interim they developed a working relationship and now he's seen that some of his skills as a Tarquette mastermind actually transfer over to the FBI, I think he's along for the ride. I think he loves working with these people. Kind of, It's a bit of a, a thrill to him as well, like a bit of a, a kink maybe, like he likes getting closer into their lives. You know, he, it's the best deal on the table for now, and I'm not going to say that doesn't get tested, and I'm not going to say Rich doesn't have his, his tendencies. You know, I think sometimes he can't help himself, so that definitely does get tested over the course of the season. We know that ever since episode nine, season one, that Rich.com has always had a soft yeah. spot for Jane and Weller. As a matter of fact, I mean, he's tried to push them together in the past a few times when things were kind of rocky. Yeah. So will we see more of that this season? I mean, he tried, to push, is... he tried to push himself in the middle of them, too. So Yeah, that, that is true. That he's is pushing. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, he, likes, he likes pushing humans together. Is, are we going to see more yeah. of that this season, or is the dynamic kind of different now? Um, no, I mean, it's definitely, he's got more people to pay attention to because, you know, he met uh, Kurt and Jane uh, in 109, and he hasn't had the chance to work as closely with everybody else. But uh, that's definitely changing this year as he has to deal with cases. And you know, you know how it is on the show. Two people go off and deal with one thing. The rest of the team's together, or half the crew's on one job, the other crew's on the other job. And so he's, he's got to work with everybody, and he gets assigned to work with everybody. And uh, I think he likes kind of picking at everybody's secrets and vulnerabilities and, and learning more about them that way. I mean, on, on that note, I mean, is there anybody that uh, Rich is going to be working with on the team that we really haven't seen him work with a lot before? Uh, well, I did just shoot sort of my first intense one-on-one with, uh, with Rob, with Edgar Reed, and uh, it occurred to me that most of our stuff had been in a group setting. And, you know, he's actually, as far as, as, far as his character goes, well, you're going to find out. I'm not going to blow the, the surprise of it, but I'm kind of on the, as, on the fly. I'm kind of figuring out, like, oh, right, we've never done, like, a – a really intense storyline together. This is great. It's a new way to a new way to interact and a new dynamic that you haven't seen. So there's so many endless uh, permutations and combinations on the show that you're gonna, you know, they, they eventually all have to happen at some point. You know, 22, 22 episodes a season. 
We're talking to Ennis Esmer, of course, who plays at Rich.com on Blindspot on NBC. Watch that Friday, 8 o'clock Eastern on NBC. Now, one of the relationships that I've always loved on the show since the beginning is Rich's interactions with Patterson. So do you feel like she's going to be resistant or hesitant to him being on the team, or will it be more of a friendly rivalry kind of deal? I mean, you know what? I think it's it's healthy for everybody to have a bit of skepticism about Rich because they've all been away, and suddenly he works for the team. Like, he's ensconced by the time they, they all get back. You know, by the time we watch the first episode, uh, without giving anything away. Again, this is tough, by the way. Doing all these, like, working on a show like this where you literally have to dance around any plot detail, that is that is a, a steep learning curve, let me tell you. But uh, I think Patterson, like the rest of them, has some doubts, you know, and I think they're justified considering his history of lying right to their face all the time. So it's on Rich to really see if he, how much he wants to gain their trust, you know, because he's ostensibly turned over a new leaf, and, uh, yeah, we'll see how much that sticks. You know, how much do people change, really? You know what I mean? I, I keep saying I'm going to go to the gym. I go to the gym twice, and then I don't go to the gym anymore. You're a better you know man I mean? than me. You're a better man than me because I keep saying I'm going to go to the gym and then never go at all, ever. <laughs> well, I didn't say I exercise. I just said I go there. Yeah, good really, point. They have really good, um, very, yeah, very they good, got good point. TV channels. Like, yeah, high def. Yeah, great sauna. Well, you don't get no exercise at all, Ennis. I mean, you're also on a show called Red Oaks. You do a great job on that on Amazon where you play a tennis pro. Now, it got me thinking, though, yes. if, if Rich.com had a sport of choice, what do you think it would be? <laughs> uh, that's amazing. I think if Rich, I mean, I bet Rich would more, like, to play to bet on because I feel like Rich would definitely <laughs> be involved and has been involved in, like, high stakes. But he'd do, like, highlight gambling, like weird, obscure yes, yes. games. Or he'd bet, he'd bet on curling, you know what I mean? He'd have, like, a curling racket. He'd fix curling games. Rich is going to be polishing that Olympic medal before you even know it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I bet he's good at darts. Have you ever watched televised darts? No, they had darts it's on like television? The darts, I mean, they have ESPN has, like, 50 channels. They have darts on television. They're drinking beer. The commentators are screaming the entire time. It's, it's unbelievable. So I, I, I'm betting Rich gets into that. Rich goes undercover in a, in a, in a dart league in, uh, in England. I didn't realize that people got so hyped for darts. Let me tell you something. Let me tell all your listeners, when you're finished with this podcast, just Google televised darts on YouTube, and you will, you will, it will, be, it will be hard-pressed to pull away from that. It is, it is a, it's shockingly full of adrenaline rushes. It's amazing. It, it was. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was uh, I was scanning through the channels uh, a couple weeks ago and there was actually a televised Quidditch match on on the, one of the ESPN channels. Oh I think it was. And and I couldn't of believe. Of course there was. I couldn't believe it. It was it was a bunch of it was a bunch of high uh, uh, college kids on PVC pipe chucking around a, around a ball and I'm thinking, well, the production quality is not very good, but I can't believe this is actually on TV. Right. I mean, look at the market that there is for esports. It's people sitting at a computer. And they're commentating it like it's the World Series. You know what I mean? So uh, <laughs> people will watch. See, I can see Rich doing that too, though. Oh yeah, but he'd hack the whole thing. He'd he'd, he'd, he'd be on the on the inside, you know, fixing matches and throwing games for people. That's that's his. I think that's his great. I feel like Rich Rich at some point is going to invest in a casino. You know what I mean? Or a slot machine company. I, I'm I'm I got to tell you, I'm spell I'm smelling spinoff on that one. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Spin-off. After he leaves the FBI, he just goes to work. At, he works, goes to work in Vegas or Atlantic City, more likely. There you go. Spinoff, web series, something. You know, yeah. come on, NBC. I know you're listening. We, yeah. we got this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Now, now getting back to it a little bit here, the name Rich.com, from the beginning, always gave me kind of a laugh, especially once you see the personality of the character. Because, let's face it, Ennis, not many people yeah. can pull that name off. So if you, Ennis Esmer, <laughs> had, to have a one, had to have one adjective to describe yourself and then put .com at the end of it, what would it be and why? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, see, I feel like Rich is more like, it's, not, it's about more than just money with Rich. Yeah, you know what I mean? So... I think it's like rich in terms of lush, it's totally. layered. There's the density there. But if I had a, um, <laughs> I don't know, uh, I'm gonna say cranky.com. Oh wow! See, I didn't peg like that cranky. at all. Yeah, cranky. <laughs> no, that's probably not. is. Uh, what's a word that's for like this? Constantly looking for external validation from strangers. Is that a word that exists? Neurotic.com. That might that, be more. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. sure. Let's go with neurotic. Given my reaction to this question, I think neurotic.com works perfectly. <laughs> I think it's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? I think it's because I'm cool under pressure. There you go. There you go. Cool you got cumber. it. Yep. Now, cool, now, as a, cool as a cool cumber. Yeah, there you go. Other side of the pillow. We could go on all day. <laughs> now, when we again, when we saw the trailer, one of the main focuses on the show looks like this season's going to be Jane versus Roman, which I'm super excited about. So, again, I, I know we're kind of mm-hmm. tiptoeing around the line here, but without spoiling anything... How intense are things really going to get? Oh, I mean, intensity, intensity is retired. What's the scale? It's going to go up to 11. Are you kidding me? Roman is uh, out for, if not blood, you know, he's been hurt. You know what I mean? Jane chose the FBI. How would you feel if, you're, if you find out you had a sister and then she chose the people that tried to bring you in and bring you down? So I think Roman's got, and he's also had two years to let all this fester and build and launch this plan. So I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be fireworks on a scale we haven't seen on the show before, and I mean literally, there's an episode of the fireworks act. I'm kidding, but I mean, imagine that would totally work. It really would. I mean, I mean, if you, if you want to get yeah, writing absolutely. credits, if you want to get writing credits on an episode or two here, I'm not I'm not gonna argue with that. You know, I'm sure the writers listen to this for pitch ideas. We can definitely sneak something in. We'll in, we'll we'll incept it into their brains. Well, well, Martin has been known to listen on occasion, so Martin, if this happens to be one of those times, you know, Ennis, Ennis has ideas too. I mean, we just want to get that out there. Yeah. Oh, believe me, he's, he's, his texts are full of ideas for me on things that Rich could do. Somehow they don't make it on the show, but I mean, you know, I have his number still. He hasn't blocked me yet, so there's well, that. All right, well, well, take us behind the curtain a little bit. What was, what was one of the craziest ideas that you pitched that didn't, that didn't get on? Oh, <laughs> Uh, the episode hasn't aired yet, but if we talk again after the episode airs, I can tell you all about it. Oh, wow. So, so there is uh, one that's going to make it. Um, no, no. The idea that I had did not make it. It was, um, it was an idea for me to play multiple characters in one episode, but he squashed that pretty quick. But I mean, at least the cast thought it was a good idea. I can, It'll I can, make sense when you see who the character is. But, uh, I was like, why, why, why isn't Rich also playing that character? So that was more, it was like, in, you know, I wanted to have my nutty professor, uh, the clumps moment, like that, any actor does when they get full of themselves. They want to play multiple characters. That would be really, really cool. Now, before I let you go, Ennis, without spoiling yeah. anything, I feel like we've been saying that the entire time, but what will we learn? We really have to keep not spoiling things. Well, I mean, it, this show is based on secrecy. It's hard to not have to not spoil anything every time. Exactly. And, I mean, it re- it'll wreck it for fans, you know what I mean? Like, for people watching it, I- I'm, I'm acutely aware... Like the passion with which the Blind Spot fans follow the show and follow the cast and, and anticipate things coming out and live tweeting is just a, a tornado of of energy and enthusiasm. I mean, I think it's it, it, I think it's a, it would be a disservice to leak stuff ahead of time. You know what I mean? And, and Martin does a great job of letting out just enough. 
to wet appetites without actually spoiling the experience watching the show. Because it is one of those things where, you know, if you watch it a second time, you can sort of notice where the secrets might have dropped a little bit before you got the big bombshells. And there's that layer as well. But, uh, you know, for first-time viewing, you got to go in as fresh as possible. Definitely. Now, without spoiling anything, what will we learn about mm-hmm. Rich.com this season that we didn't know about him before? Uh, you know what? I think his propensity for doing good will surprise some people. And I think some of it, sometimes his loyalty gets tested in a way where you can see him considering how to grow and change. And I think that's sort of crucial in making the character last. Like, while it was fun to play Rich the way it was before, and he's still that same guy, the context has shifted. And I think he's learning, like, what he's actually gotten himself into is different than what he thought it was off the top. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's kind of why I asked the question. I wanted to see if we were going to go there, and it's good. Yeah. I'm glad to see that we're going to get the, – the onion is going to be peeled. Yes, there's definitely – there's going to be some – I mean, we got that in uh, episode 14 of last season when you got to see kind of the, the, the neuroses in the core of, of Rich's origin story that he kind of missed an opportunity to be legit and a success and chose this way almost out of bitterness he became a criminal. So there you see that, like you see that there's – guy who doesn't want to live this way anymore in there and i think when he first sort of jumps to the chance to join the fbi fbi because it's, it's fun to be around those people and to mess with them the the actual demands of the job and what it represents uh become apparent to rich very early on so it's up to him to decide if he actually wants to take on that responsibility and it's not like he hasn't had an up and down personal life while we've seen him on the show either absolutely geez louise his diaries are just full full of scribbles Oh, that see that should be a Twitter account by itself, the Rich dot com diaries. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home and start it. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, we can't wait to see you and the entire cast every Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's Blind Spot on NBC New Night, New Time. Make sure you catch it. It's NSAsmarich dot com. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a blast. Looking forward to so much more Blindspot on its new night now, Friday nights. Check your local listings for when you can watch Season 3 of Blindspot on NBC. And looking forward to see more of Rich.com. He was always one of those characters that I sort of gravitated to and loved. It's almost like when you had the Batgirl episodes of the old Batman 66 series, you wanted to see Batgirl on there. I wanted to see Rich.com more on Blindspot, and it looks like I'm going to get my wish. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Ennis Esmer for coming on the show to talk about Blindspot and Rich.com coming to Season 3 this year a little bit more. Also, I wanted to thank Saxton Charbonneau for coming on to talk about Freakish, which you can stream on Hulu right now. She was also on Lucifer on What Would Lucifer Do? Check that out at Fox.com and the Fox app. If you want more information on what's on the show this week, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. If you forgot something that was on the show or just want to maybe you want to look up one of the comics that I reviewed to buy you can do that there on the this week section you can also follow us on social media at facebook.com slash down and nerdy at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and instagram as well and while you're thinking about that think about this you never have to apologize for being a nerd so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds